We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is Greg Olson, and I'm thrilled to introduce my new podcast, TE1. TE1 will chronicle a 60-year evolution of the tight end position, from its origins as an obscure, overlooked blocking role to the versatile superstar position that it is today. I'll explore the evolution of the position through conversations with some of the all-time game-changing tight ends. And just like the incredible tight ends we sit down with on my new show, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. This truck is all about grit, strength, and dependability. The same attributes it takes to be a tight end. Blue Wire. All right, welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast brought to you by Blue Wire. And this week presented by DirecTV, NFL Sunday Ticket, DoorDash, and BetOnline.ag. I am your host, Kyle Vanduho. Today's episode, we are talking Everybody's All-American, the 1988 film that I mistakenly refer to as 1998 uh, when we actually recorded the podcast. Uh, Dennis Quaid, Jessica Lange, John Goodman. It's available on HBO Max. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out for this podcast. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, Jeff, my guest, my guest Jeff Perlman, uh, he's back. He joined last month for Teen Wolf 2. He liked this one more than I did, and he's a great perspective for the movie. He's covered aging athletes, you know, just like Dennis Quaid's character in this movie. Um, it's always fun to have Jeff on. He's got a new book coming out, Three Ring Circus, about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. I've pre-ordered my copy. You should probably do the same. Uh, you can also check out his pod, Two Writers Sling and Yang, which comes at you every Tuesday. So tomorrow, if you're listening to this pod, the day it drops. Uh, I am a, I'm a big fan of Jeff's, and I, always great to have him back on the pod. Some quick programming notes. Typically, I put this uh, the month's non-sports movie in a poll on the Big Screen Sports Facebook group. Last month, Crazy Stupid Love came in second place, and that's a movie I love, and it's on TV all the time. Like It's on FX. It feels like every other day. So that's going to be the movie for September. It's something I want to want to cover, but um, I'm going to put a poll up soon in the group for the movie for October. Uh, maybe a horror movie, maybe Halloween, movie that's given me nightmares since I saw it way too early in like second grade. Um, I don't know. We'll see. It'll be up to you. Anyone a anyone is a member of the Big Screen Sports Facebook group uh, might also put out a call for listener questions if anyone's interested in a listener questions up later this month. So be on the lookout for that if you're a, a member of the group. Um, I want to thank everyone who's left a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. Recently crossed the 200 mark. 
Um, I also shout out anyone who lives leaves a five star review at the time of recording. I got a one star review recently, so uh, not going to give that person a name shout out, but uh, fuck that person. Um, but yeah, five star review. We'll we'll shout it out at time of recording. Next week's episode, kind of a bit up in the air. I'm in the process of moving. Not sure what recording looks like, but I'll do a Thursday drop, kind of let everyone know, anyone who's subscribed, wherever they get their podcasts, uh, you know, let everyone know what next Monday is going to be. But with that, let's talk Everybody's All-American with Jeff Perlman. All right, joining me today on Big Screen Sports, returning to Big Screen Sports after uh, after joining me for Teen Wolf 2 last month, it is New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thanks for returning to Big Screen Sports. I always appreciate you coming on. I mean, once you hit Teen Wolf 2, it's a little tempting never to come back because you're never going to have it any better, but I decided, what the heck, I'll come. Well, I hope this isn't your Jordan on the Wizards moment. It might be. I mean, Teen Wolf 2 was, you know, uh, hitting the shot over Brian Russell, so this might be me, uh, you know, missing a dunk. This might be you ruining Kwame Brown. Exactly. Um, before we get into it, uh, you've got a book coming out. Tell me about it. Uh, it's called Three Ring Circus. It's about the Shaq, Kobe, Phil Jackson dynasty, 96 to 04 Lakers. Uh, comes out September 22nd. It's my ninth book, and uh, I'm pretty happy about it. I'm pretty excited for it. I mean, you know, as these things go, with considering that the, one of the main protagonists died tragically this year, um, I, I'm still excited about it. I'm excited for it, too. I've got it pre-ordered. Um, also, your your podcast, Two Writers Sling and Yang, if you want to plug that, that comes out every Tuesday, if I remember correctly. Every Tuesday, different writer. I'm up uh, in the high hundreds. I've, I've never had a repeat writer, so it's always a different writer talking about the craft and sort of approach and style and different stories. So if you're listening to this, uh, the day it drops on Monday, September 7th, Jeff has a new episode coming out tomorrow. But he is joining me on this podcast to talk about a pretty underseen sports movie. It was something that, until you you asked me about it, it wasn't really on my radar. We are talking about Everybody's All-American, the 1998 dramatic football movie. In 1956, Gavin Gray was pure Louisiana. You got a church key? That's what made him wild. Babs Rogers. Look at Babs. She was the perfect beauty queen. That's what made her his. I just want to be yours, Kevin. I just want to be Mrs. Kevin Gray. He was the kind of man every woman wanted and every man wanted to be. First round draft pick. I guess that means the Redskins. I'm special just as long as I keep making touchdowns. Warner Brothers presents Jessica Lange, Dennis Quaid, Timothy Hutton. Ah! In a story that celebrates the glory of youth, the challenge of life, and the endurance of love through the years. Everybody's All-American, directed by Taylor Hackford. Their life story is a love story. A Louisiana football legend struggles to deal with life's complexities after his college career is over. It starred Dennis Quaid, Jessica Lange, Timothy Hutton, and John Goodman. It was directed by Taylor Hackford, who would, uh, who would later go on to direct Ray got a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes, only grossed $12.64 million in the domestic box office. Uh, Jeff, b- before we get into Hall of Fame All-Star starter or bench warmer, what was your, your first viewing experience? Did you see this one when it came out? Were you part of that kind of measly $12.64 million? I was not. I think um, I definitely had it on VHS, I think, when I started my career at the Tennessean in the early 90s. I might have bought it on a VHS at like a tag sale 
or something like that. And since then, I've probably seen it six or seven times. Okay, so it's a it's quite the rewatchable for you. This one is on um it's on HBO Max right now. If anyone, if you're listening to this episode and haven't seen it, or haven't seen it in a while, uh, Jeff, for you, is it a Hall of Fame All Star starter or bench warmer sports movie? To me, it's a All Star bordering on Hall of Fame. Believe it or not, really? Yes. This is going to be an interesting podcast. Okay. Uh, what's the so what's your what's your quick rundown of that? You that you hold this one in very high esteem. I do. Yeah, I know it's flawed. I know it's it's dated. It feels kind of dated. Um, I just think it's the only movie I've ever seen that really does an exceptional job at showing what it is to be kind of a has-been. Like, I feel like as a sports writer, I've been haunted many, many times by the saga of athletes who are on top of the world in college, um, and then it's just a steady decline ever since. And, and there's a line in this movie that I've quoted about a million times over the years. And it's when Dennis Quaid, you know, he was a, an all American in college and he's kind of faded and faded. And he says to his wife, you know, almost crying, I don't even know if I'm remembering the stories I tell anymore or they're just stories of stories, you know, like I just think there's, I just think there's a real beauty to it. I do. It's a very unique concept because most I would say most sports movies that show some sort of quote unquote downfall of an athlete or an athlete far from their peak, it is usually something self-inflicted or there's like an injury or drug problem or a, a poor attitude or something like that. And this one is just about like age, which gets, which gets every athlete, which is every athlete's biggest fear. Uh, for me, it is a, and I, I was a first time viewer. It's a starter. Um, it, it's pretty uneven for me. I like the. I love the concept. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more movies like this. I mean, n- not to do another plug, but the interview series I do with Baseball America, a lot of the, you know, what has interested me about doing it, talking to these former baseball players is, okay, how do you adjust to not being a professional baseball player anymore? How do you go from when at some point you're drafted, you're very highly regarded? How do you process not being so highly regarded anymore not being you know when your shit actually starts to stink and that's what this movie is about it's got some actors i like a lot but it it wastes for me it wasted too much time with shit that i didn't care about and i i it found me like the scene and we'll get into it with best scene but the scene where he's talking to fucking cake which is another thing uh-huh. that I just hated about this movie. But when they're at the at the country club and he's pitching cake his book, but it is more about getting his feelings out about, you know, the fact that he is a has-been, that he's just a golf pro at a country club now, is, like, I needed so much more of that. And, like, I want to ask you, if you were to cover this guy, what's the story? Like, what's the story in his career? His career kind of reminds me of Archie Manning, a star player on bad teams, but it feels like... I feel like this movie missed this, like the story. Well, I see. I disagree. I do agree. I, I I think it definitely took some paths that didn't need to be taken. Um, I agree with you. There was too much cake. There was also too much John Goodman. But I just am really. I'm telling you that. All right, there was a moment you talked about the moment at the country club. I have actually had athletes say to me, "Oh, since I have, I have you on the line." Uh, I, I'm really, I've really been, th- I just, literally, I had a guy yesterday, a major league journeyman, yesterday, 
talked to me about the book he wanted to write. And I know he was kind of feeling me out to see if I'd be interested in writing with him. And it was a guy who played 10 years in the 1980s. And, you know, if you named, if you walked down the street in the city he played in for nine of those 10 years, maybe one out of 100 recognize him. Um, and he was pitching me on his book. And I just thought, to me, the movie is about, like you just said, you have something golden and beautiful and precious and you experience something nobody else ever gets to experience and then you lose it and it's gone forever and it's not just gone though it's almost like you're always going to be reminded that you were superman except you don't have the powers anymore so you were superman until you were 28 or whatever 28 years old and then you lose it and it's all gone i just think that's such a haunting sort of thing to go through and so many athletes go through it absolutely I mean it is I needed I just needed the movie to focus on that more to focus on that gradual decline it was there was a lot of and I think Jessica Lang is is just excellent. like I think I think the world of her we watched mm-hmm. we watched the politician recently and I I loved her in the series but I I I didn't the story was very focused on her in a lot of times and put Dennis Quaid's character kind of on the bench if you will and like I needed to see more of that. I needed to see the career decline happening. I needed to see more awareness of his life as a professional athlete. It seems there's a big stretch in the movie where he kind of pops in and out in a lot of ways. And that's that's the life of an athlete in a lot of ways, like with their family. They're not they're not around all the time. But I needed to see what was going on. I needed to see more get more of a look in his head. And, yeah, and I, go ahead. Well I was gonna say, I think um I like John Goodman generally. I think John Goodman has been very good in a lot of things. I thought he was really bad in this movie or just was the wrong guy for this movie. And, you know, he, you know, for people who haven't seen the movie, he basically, the the gray ghost becomes this football star and he trusts his college buddy slash uh, offensive lineman to run his bar. He opens a bar because he's a celebrity and this is what they used to do. And his John Goodman basically is a gambling addict who, you know, leaves them broke. And I just think Goodman sucked away some of the life of this movie. He way overdid it. He also looked way too old for the part. Um, and I think we could have, we didn't need that. He could have just had nothing. He could have had nothing to do with this restaurant. Everyone told him it was going to be a great investment and it didn't work out. And that would have been fine. So I, I do agree. There's some side things going on that are unnecessary and do take away from the overall plot. Goodman is trying really, really hard. But- way too hard. Um, I, I've got another question. As someone who is has interviewed hundreds and thousands of athletes in your life and just people in general, mm-hmm. who would you rather interview for an hour, Dennis or Randy Quaid? Because we get a we get a peak cocaine era Dennis Quaid in this movie. Uh, Randy Quaid is just like the human embodiment of of cocaine and LSD at this point. If you got an hour to sit down and do a story on one of these two, who are you picking? I think I'm going Dennis Quaid because Dennis Quaid recently was engaged. I think he's 73 and he was engaged to like a 24-year-old. And I think that in and of itself is kind of fascinating. In fact, it's an interesting thing tailing off this movie because the movie is a lot about holding on to your youth and trying to hang on to this thing that's elusive and just fighting for it and fighting for it and fighting for it. But your just age doesn't lie. And then here he is now at this point in his life and he's dating someone who's 50 years younger than him. Yeah, I saw an article about that when I covered the rookie on this podcast, but uh, they they said they they connected through their faith, which is um, I'm sure, I'm sure. I forgot about um, the rookie. I forgot Dennis Quaid was in two fine movies, the rookie and this. He is. Uh, he and, is um, not good at 
He's in the Oliver Stone movie too. Oh, the um, the yeah, any given Sunday. Yeah, that's yeah. A, for me. That's his best sports movie. I think this I, is better I enjoy, than any given Sunday. Oh, I enjoy any given Sunday. Yeah. Um, any given su- Sunday is one of the all-time speeches. Uh, was there any? I, I mentioned Archie Manning. Is there a pro football player that this guy's career reminded you of? Anyone you covered? Anyone you remember? Oh uh, yeah, actually, I was just thinking when you said Archie Manning. See, I think Archie Manning had um, a little too great of a career. I think the Grey Ghost in this movie had a, a good career, but not a great career. Um, and I was thinking former Heisman Trophy winners. Date this will date is a little before your time, but um, Archie Griffin, who won the Heisman Trophy twice at Ohio State. Ohio State, yeah, was a first round draft pick by the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, you know, heavily hyped, didn't have that great of an NFL career. Retired, came out of retirement to play in the USFL, got pummeled in the USFL, and then went away. And I always thought that was a pretty comparable. The only difference between Archie Griffin is black. This guy's white, and that plays into the movie, you know, his race and sort of the time period. Mm-hmm. He gets he gets left behind as a running back with that Broncos stint. Um, pulled a few things from the INDB trivia. There's not a ton of great stuff on this movie. Uh, filming was stopped for weeks when Quaid had his collar bra- collarbone broken by Tim Fox of the New England Patriots during filming. Footage of Quaid rolling in pain on the sidelines at the snow game appears in the finished film. So at least he got like wow. he got something for his pain. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, John Goodman did actually play college football at Southwest Missouri State, which I think now is just Missouri State. Yeah, uh, an injury ended the possibility of a football career, causing him to pursue a drama major instead. Kind of like you said, he's much better in a lot of things that aren't this movie. Yeah, this was not good for him. This is a bad... It might be the worst performance by John Goodman in a movie. Not at all. Um, a couple casting things. So there are a couple guys. The The first person who was linked to this... Uh, in 1982, uh, was Tommy Lee Jones, uh, and a couple other guys that they said have been had circled the project were Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, and Robert De Niro. Wow! I don't, I don't know. I I don't know what this movie looks like with those guys. I could see Redford doing a pretty solid job with it, actually. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. he's a great actor. I thought Quaid was, even though Quaid at the time apparently was really strung out on cocaine, um, I think he's great in this movie. I he has some of that cocaine energy. Yeah, it definitely does. And he uh, he plays it well. Like, he really – he is at the beginning this young, strapping halfback, and he is at the end this faded star who's kind of pathetic and sad. He does it really, really well. I think the only thing that goes bad with Quaid is that makeup they put him in, yeah, in the, the uh, at the end of it. They, it's like a prosthetic chin or something. I don't know. It's a tough look. Yeah. Uh, last bit of IMDb trivia, Jessica Lange hates this movie. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to read the full quote. It's very long, but she was doing a, an interview in 1989, uh, said she would not work for the director again. Uh, quote, never in a million years for all the money in China or all the tea in China, all the money in the world. I never would. Wow. Jessica Lang, she was not, not for this one apparently back in 1989. Wow. I'm a little disappointed to hear that. Is that weird? I'm a little sad. No, I mean, if, if you if you like this movie a lot, it is. It's a bummer to hear it. Um, let's roll into best scene. Okay. Uh, I'm doing these chronologically. You know the drill. If I miss one of your favorites, by all means, you know, holler at me. Um, the first one I got, the first time that I, like, I took real interest watching this on the couch, I love the scene where he goes down and meets Narvel Blue and they do it's that great. race. I'm a, I was a big fan of that scene. Great scene. Great scene. I agree. The food in that shack 
that that place that Narvel Blue is working has got to be amazing. Amazing <laughs> Louisiana barbecue. It was probably they probably just took out from KFC, but it looks really good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. But I'm sure had the place existed, uh, I, th- I think it's great. I, I really enjoy that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, then the next one I have is is the Sugar Bowl. Uh, Goodman's face is covered in blood, just like it was in the previous game. Like in re- if this had happened in real life, John Goodman's character's nose is just all sorts of fucked up. Yeah, that is true. And it's a great scene. And they do the football scenes are pretty good in this movie. Yeah, another uh, thing I saw on the IMDb is they did uh, some of the filming of the football scenes took place during at actual LSU games. Uh, so they, you know, they. I was very surprised going into it actually. One that LSU had signed off, and they really a, a thing this movie does well is they they got the LSU involved like, involvement and they got that environment in the movie, and it's very much apparent in this Sugar Bowl scene, like like they got the 1950s college football environment, which I think is is really fun. I don't think it works. You wouldn't feel the magnitude of how beloved this guy was without seeing that. Yeah, and I also just want to say, I because I know it wasn't among your best scenes, but the scene when he goes back to the LSU game for the 25th anniversary of the Sugar Bowl winners, and he's standing on the field, and he thinks everyone is cheering for him, and then he realizes they're not, and he's mortified. I thought that captured so much in so little. I really did. I thought that ca- – because it – I just said the other day, I think probably thinking about this movie and this podcast, how for me there's nothing sadder than a former college star walking unrecognized across his campus three years after his last game. I just think it's such a sad sight. And that really – that moment was really sad to me. And it was also took place at, a, uh, at an LSU game. I I had that. That's on the list for the. For that, that's on my list. I did like that one. Um, I, I the the thing about when he when he freaks out at halftime, him like going over to the tiger cage, it's just it's very tough to watch. Like once you get over the bad makeup and the bad hair color, you see that that like intent that they were going for of how bad he feels about where his life has gotten to, how much he wishes he could grasp it. That that goes all the way back to that Sugar Bowl scene because I thought one of the best things they did, like all the football is that setup for him being carried off the field and realizing his college career is ending. I thought it was really important that they got that moment. They zoomed in on his face of him taking in the crowd and stuff and realizing that he's just played his last game, not just played his last game, he has spent his last few seconds as an idol, as a true active player idol at LSU. And I thought that was, that was a really important moment in the film. Wait, Kyle, I, can I go on a, a one minute tangent? Go on a one minute tangent. I really think not enough sports fans consider what it is to be a former athlete. It is a, a death time. You know, they always say in sports, you have two deaths, your real death. And when you retired from sports, it is a death times a thousand. It is the worst. It is, unbearable. There are a couple of athletes who are prepared for it, but even if you're prepared for it, you're not really prepared for it. And it is crushing and it is hard and you will never have 50,000 people cheering for you again. And you will never have these athletic gifts. You'll never have the women. You'll never have the money. You'll never have the fame. You'll never have the endorsements. It is such a gut punch. And I mean, thinking just about the books I've written through my career, um, when I think of Walter Payton, just as an example, when Walter Payton retired, he didn't know what to do. You know, he didn't, he pretended he did, but he really didn't. And he almost came back with the Miami Dolphins 
uh, two years after he retired. He was like, oh, they need a fullback. I'll come back and be fullback. And on the outside, people are like, God, that's really kind of pathetic. But it's not pathetic because you're trying to hold on to something that is so beautiful and so precious. And once it's gone, it's gone. And it is crushing. I agree. I mean, that's the strongest argument you can make for this movie because there's mm-hmm. really no there's really not many other sports movies that do something like that that really focus on how brutal that is for any athlete, especially a star athlete to, to experience. But part of, for me, why this movie might not work as well is I'm looking at my list. Are there any scenes in between when he gets carried off at the sugar bowl and his retirement press conference with the Redskins that you really love in this movie? Okay. There's actually one scene. I'm trying to think, was that, when he retired, was John Goodman dead already? John Goodman was dead already. Yeah, I okay. I was very tempted to put John Goodman's death scene when he like it's a hell of a it's a hell of a yeah. brawl. Like I was kind of laughing, and then I was like, because I I didn't really I didn't think he was gonna die, and uh, it, it was a hell of a brawl. I did not put that, but yes, the retirement is after the death. Okay, scene. there was one scene. It's so minor and tiny. But it was a moment that I thought was really important. And it was um, John Goodman is killed. So John Goodman is his best friend and he runs the bar and it's in Louisiana and he's killed. And it turns out he's killed by gamblers. But the Grey Ghost doesn't know this yet. And he assumes. So all movie we're, we're shown that the Grey Ghost is a good guy and he's really nice and decent to Norvell Blue, the African-American, you know, uh, football player. He's great to him. There's a scene after. John Goodman dies, where the Grey Ghost storms into Norvell Blue runs a restaurant. And he storms into the restaurant, walks into the back office, and says, tell me the N-word who did this. Who was the N-word who did this? He uses the N-word. I thought it was a really poignant and important moment because I have come across many people of a certain era and a certain geography who their they still have racism in them and they still have that hate in them and they try really hard not to, but it comes out sometimes. And when it comes out, it's really ugly. And there's that moment when he says that and he realizes as soon as he says it, that he screwed up and it was a mistake. And if you remember, he turns around to walk out and everyone in the kitchen, everyone who works there is black. They're all staring at him and he just walks out and they're all staring at him quietly. I think it's an amazing scene that could easily be overlooked in this movie. See, and I, the movie does a good job. I had that kind of in my notes for later. The movie does a good job of that, of, of pointing out that like he realizes, oh shit, that was a really bad call. Yeah. But it has Narvel Blue, who is, we, we have already seen, um, was, was a civil rights activist in the 60s because you get that glimpse of him doing the sit-in, which, which Confederate Sympathy Cake, who I'm going to, we're going to get to, uh, witnesses. And he just kind of up and does does the ghost bidding in this and is very isn't doesn't stick up at all for um you know the manner in which he was talked to and it just seemed very i mean i understood he wanted to clear he wanted to clear the name of whoever ghost was accusing and he did that but it was it was very much the whole narvel is a civil rights activist they they kind of pop that in and then they pop it out it doesn't really it, it doesn't end up it being a whole lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, if they were going to do that, it, they just didn't, the character didn't, he just goes on to be a great businessman. It was kind of an interesting, 
Um, but besides that, did you have anything in between that and the retirement? Because I feel like the whole the ghost NFL career, which I think was a great opportunity to show the gradual decline. I mean, you get a little bit in the first, in his rookie year or so, when he's, you get the glimpse of, oh, hey, the NFL or pro football isn't as fun as, isn't as fun as college. I'm not as adored as college. And then it's, it's very much focuses on a, a lot of Jessica Lang and not as much, you don't, you don't get a good glimpse of how good Ghost was as a football player until as a pro football player until halftime of that reunion game at LSU when they run through his his stats and accolades and you hear that he was an all pro twice. That's actually a really interesting that's actually a pretty good point. Because we we don't know if he was more like if you were saying to me what kind of player, what kind of NFL player was he he would be like um not Curtis Martin. Because Curtis Martin's in a Hall of Fame. Yeah, Curtis Martin was elite. Yeah, not Curtis Martin. But like, all right, the Jets had a running back a bunch of years ago, Adrian Morrell. And Adrian Morrell ran for 1,000 yards maybe three times. And he had like an eight-year career. I think he was Adrian Morrell. And I do agree with you. They didn't show enough of him during his uh, his Redskins. So we, we don't have a great evaluation of how good of a player he was in the NFL. Yeah, you don't really get a gauge of just how things are going for him on the field. And I think that's important because how things were going for him on the field and how he was perceived in the community was very important to that character. Right. Because um, his entire his entire sense of worth was built on him as a football player. The The next few scenes I've got are stuff in retirement. Um, I think the the glimpses, it, it's like a quick montage of his, what his retirement's life is when he's having to tell his old stories to pimp those products. He's golfing yeah. with people he doesn't really like. Um, watching him mow the grass when when bowling comes up to, to talk to him is just incredible dad shit. Uh, one of the most authentic moments in the movie or conversations in the movie is when he unloads on Babs about how much he hates retirement. I think it's right after that. Yeah. Um, the, the retirement stuff is really good. I just feel like the movie's missing a chunk. I just think I think my favorite scene is when he asks Kate to write his book. And that's that's what I was about to. I think that's my favorite too. Because it's just first of all, Timothy. I'm telling you, I'm not saying I'm any superstar. I've been in that situation, and Timothy Hutton played the awkwardness of it really, really well. And there was a point where, a little bit later, where Jessica Lang, his wife, says something like, "Enough about the book," and all of a sudden, Grey Ghost is like, "Oh." Right. Okay. Sorry. You know, like I thought it was a really, the whole thing was really interestingly constructed. I'm going to, I'm going to draw some differences between you and and Timothy Hutton and cake in this scenario. Uh, one cake through the whole movie is just trying every facial hairstyle he can think of and none of it's hitting right. Um, but he is not too good to write that book. Like he, Jeff, you are a, a New York New York Times bestselling author. Of a, what your ninth book is coming out now? Yeah, Cake has written a book about Jeb Stewart that no one has read besides apparently the Ghost. Cake is not too good to write that book. But I think he's an academic writer, so he's like, yeah, I don't do those kind of like. But although you're saying basically, if Archie Manning came up to him and said, "I'd love you to write my book," he'd be like, "Great, let's do it." Uh, exactly. Exactly. If a, yeah, if a Louisiana legend comes up and says, "Hey, Cake, I need you to write this book," because like I feel like even the, the ghost might be a little forgotten. I feel like that book would still sell. Um, that kind of goes into it's the same thing when Ghost is doing the recording of his games and making oh. the group listen to him. That's like so good. 
yeah, that is, that is excellent because that is the ultimate re guy just trying to hold on to the glory days by any means necessary. Oh, that's when Bab says, "Gavin, turn it off. Gavin, turn it off." And and it was like this embarrassing. He's like, "No, wait, wait. This one more game." And it was this realization: "Oh, I'm actually a fool, and it has been." Like that moment was really poignant. I think, yeah, I, I think that's the, but that combined with okay. him talking to Cake at the country club, because the, the, he's pitching the book, but he's not even full in the book. It's just like, it's really him just pitching how much he laments the loss of his old life. It's more, it's as much of a therapy session as it is a book pitch. Yeah, I agree. And also I think uh, it's important to note that Everybody's All American was a book written by Frank DeFord, who's a legendary Sports Illustrated writer. And I thought, he like the I think the reason I love this movie so much of this movie is because I probably went through a lot of the similar experiences that Frank DeFord went through, which is seeing athletes on the decline, having athletes ask you to write their books. I'm not saying I'm DeFord by any stretch of the imagination, but if you're a sports writer in this business long enough, you actually have those experiences. And I think he Frank in the book and then the, the transition to a movie showed sort of viewers something that they don't see that much, which is the, like he understands what it is to be an athlete and kind of the pathetic elements of being a former athlete. And because he was a guy who wrote that book, it comes across in the movie. Yeah. It's really, it, it's a really effective scene. I just, I, God, I wish there was, there was more in the middle to back it up. Um, let's take a quick ad break and then get back with best quote. Big screen sports is brought to you by DoorDash. You've counted on restaurants now they're counting on you and while their dining rooms may be closed they're still open for delivery with doordash doordash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door ordering's easy open the doordash app choose what you eat and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting we've used doordash a lot in the last you know five six months and it's it's been a lifesaver for a lot of people uh literally choose your favorite national restaurants like chipotle wendy's and the cheesecake factory Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery, too. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local spot, and your food is on the way. Right now, Big Screen Sports listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Big Screen Sports is also brought to you by NFL Sunday Ticket, the only way to watch football on Sunday. Sundays are coming back in the NFL like we're almost here. We got like two weeks, I think. Uh, with NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game and every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices, plus Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels. Never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. Red Zone, unless your team is on, like for me, unless the Cowboys are on, Red Zone's the only way to watch football at this point. It is... It is just the best. Uh, no matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout. Get 50% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use promo code BLUEWIRE. All right. We are back with, with best quote. And you said you had mentioned one earlier in the in the movie. Do you have a – or earlier in the podcast, do you have a, a go-to favorite quote from this one? You know, I love when he talks about how he can't remember. I think I butchered the quote a little before, but it's something about how he can't, he can't remember. He's told the same story so often that he doesn't even know if he's telling the stories off of remembering them or just telling the stories. And I've actually used that 
that theme many times when I've written about retired athletes, where they're telling a story and you tell it so often you don't even remember it anymore. You're just telling the story. And I just, I thought that was a really poignant, poignant moment. He said that to Babs, his wife. Um, it's probably my favorite. It's probably my favorite moment. Oh, and then um, I like when uh, when Norvell Blue comes to see him at the at the bar he owns, and he says something like, "You don't, you can go out the front door, Norvell," and he said, "Soon enough, I'll be going out any door I please." I like that. I like that too, but that's what drives me crazy is they they have that, and then it sets up that he's a civil rights activist and he's doing the sit in. And and then he just he owns some restaurants. Yeah, like that's great. I would love to own some restaurants if someone wants to go in on a, a couple franchises with me. By all means, holler. But it's not the it's not the ascension that you expected after you see him being arrested at a sit-in. I agree. Um, I also think Carl Lumbly played Norvell Blue, and he was great. I actually thought he was great. I think he did as much as you could with that character and limited lines. Um, and I do agree with you. It's a little confusing who exactly this guy is trying to be and what his sort of what his long range goal is. Cause at the end, you're right. He's just a guy who owns a bunch of restaurants. Mm-hmm. I think the quote you mentioned about you know, the, the stories is, is probably the best one. It's probably the one that best describes this movie. There was one that stuck out to me really early in the movie. And it's, it's actually Jessica Lang talking to cake uh, when she says the thing, it's very cliche and it's very, it's got, a decent bit of foreshadowing when she says I'm majoring in Gavin and me. And it basically sets up, she doesn't have any other plans except being the ghost's wife. And that's, that is another thing. And it, it's not. So this movie, I I lamented the middle is kind of like, is kind of tough. And it focuses a lot on Jessica Lang, the athlete's wife, especially that wife who has been there from the get go and, you know, gets together with that athlete when they were on top of the world it is very much a package deal of of suffering and struggling to come up with a new identity when things aren't going as well for the athlete and you that that is a big theme of this movie and that quote is is very foreshadowing and that you like oh you know that's not going to go well you know yeah. she's not going to want to just be Mr. Gavin Gray for the rest of her life yeah and it's interesting from both vantage points and again this is a pretty common thing in sports like he has to watch her so he's always been, you know, the, the, the son and everything revolves around him. So at the same time, he's sort of going down, she's going up. So you have the two almost competing perspectives of an athlete on the fade watching his wife become the breadwinner. And at the same time, this wife who used to worship this man and just saw him as this hero in this thing. It was going to be her and him and she was all about him. And along the line, you get older and you realize this guy is just a guy. And he's not that special and maybe he's not that smart. He's not that inquisitive and all he wants to talk about is football. And um, so you have these two things going on simultaneously. And I do think, I didn't think, I didn't love uh, Jessica Lange across the board in this movie, but I thought in that area, she was very, very good. I, I think so too. Um, and I, I agree with the the take of Je- on Jessica Lange in this movie, which we can get to in a bit. Jeff, what's the, what was the most authentic part of this sports centric part of this movie for you? Oh man, I actually thought his uh, his comeback with the Broncos, I could have watched that for an hour. It was First a fantastic all, bit. It was so good, and also, so I'm a kid of the '80s, but and they were using '70s clips of the Broncos. So the quarterback for the Broncos was Craig Morton, and that was Craig Morton. And there was a point, 
He was actually number 41 for the Broncos back then was a guy named, it was a running back named Rob Lido out of Syracuse. So the far away shots were actually Rob Lido running the ball. And there was, when he was benched, when the Grey Ghost was pulled out of the game for fumbling, and then they ran a, uh, I think they ran a, re, a sweep, like a jet sweep on the next play. It was actually Rick Upchurch, who was a star with the Broncos in that play running. And they mixed in Dennis Quaid as a Bronco and scenes from Bronco games as well as I've ever seen it done. I was legitimately shocked about how good the football action was. The only time where I thought it looked a little tough or a little cheesy was during the Sugar Bowl game where you've got Goodman and Quaid trying to talk a little shit at the line of yeah. scrimmage and they do the weird fumble thing. Like that, that you know, but when they, it was just kind of montage shots, I thought it looked great, especially because... I talk about the sliding scale of how realistic things need to look. Football in 1956 does not need to look as good as if you're depicting, you know, football now. Right. Um, same with the set, but yeah, they do. They do a great job of that. What I had for most authentic, and we pretty much we already, we already not to beat a dead horse. Aging is just mentally brutal for star athletes. It's a fantastic concept. Yeah, it's actually mentally brooding. It's it's. I mean, I feel like part of the reason I love this movie is because I'm 48. And I'm trying to hold on to my career. And you look and you're 12 years away from 60. You're like, holy shit, how am I 12 years away from 60? And, you know, you just, we just said my ninth book is about to come out. Well, how long am I going to be able to hold on to that? Like, how long am I going to be able to do that for? And my kid, my daughter's a senior in high school. My son's a freshman. And I'm going to blink and they're both going to be uh, in college and then out of college. And I just think at some point we all go through something like this, not necessarily in sports, but in life, where we start to question our, not just our vitality, but our relevance. Before you, before you know it, you'll be 60 and you'll be on your seventh book, your seventh fictional book about the wolf from Teen Wolf 2. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you'll wonder what happened. How I did, love it. How did I write about the wolf seven times? It's awesome. Um, for least authentic, there's probably a lot of nitpicky things to, to choose from this movie. Uh, Gavin is a golf pro to country club after not knowing how to play a decade earlier. Golf yeah. is hard, even yeah. if you're a pro football and pro football players are not besides like quarterbacks are not, they're not always the ones that pick. You think of like pitchers, pitchers are good golfers mm -hmm. running back. Um, Gavin, I don't know. Do you have to be, I'm not a golfer. Could you be hired as a golf? Maybe you're quote unquote, the golf pro, but you're just one of three and they hired you cause you're in Louisiana and you're the gray ghost and people want to sort of around with you see i i gave i gave it that thought and i i guess there is i guess that'd be the move i i think that's the most likely scenario but i feel like you still he has to be very close to a scratch handicap he at least has to be a, like a low handicap guy and that's tough to do although if he's playing if he's doing nothing but playing golf with his business partners for you know for 10 10 straight years yeah, I could see it, but I, just, I saw him when, when she's like, oh, Gavin's the golf pro at the country club. And I was like, Gavin started playing golf just like <laughs> not that long ago. That's kind of wild. Yeah. What did you have? What's the least authentic thing about this movie to you? All right, I think it comes in the sugar bowl. This just comes as a sports writer. So it's Georgia LSU. Georgia's winning. The game's basically over. They basically have to take a knee and the game's over. And Gavin's like, we're not going to lose. We're not going to lose. And the huddle on. He tells John Goodman to distract and say whatever you have to say and start saying crazy things. And Gavin's going to blitz over the line and make him fumble. And, and it works. Um, an SEC-level quarterback 
is not getting overly panicked because John Goodman and Nosegard says there are no rules. And the center and the guards um, for Georgia are saying to John Goodman, shut the fuck up, you fat fuck. Like, we're beating you in this game. Like, they're not, like, all cowering like they did there. It kind of drives me crazy. And I do not like... It was a very 80s thing to do. We've talked about this with other movies. To make the quote-unquote fat guy, like, indestructible. And this in, indomitable sort of physical force. Like, John Goodman did not look like a physical force. He looked like an overweight interior lineman who you put in there to stop the run. They needed Chubbs on the line. They needed Chubbs in the worst way. Chubbs could have been on the line, and Chubbs also knows how to box. That's true. That's true. I just, is, was kneeling not a thing in the 50s? I don't know. It reminds me of a, do you know the play, again, you're a little younger than I am, or a lot younger than I am, uh, the fumble when Herm Edwards in the Meadowlands, the Miracle on the, Miracle in the Meadowlands, or Joe Pisarczyk fumbles. Do you know this play? I, I, I'm not familiar, unfortunately. Oh, like the, the Miracle in the Meadowlands, like, sounds familiar. Like, the earliest, I mean, and Herm in Herm in, uh, in the I, Jets was after, you. it was after the Music City Miracle, though, wasn't it? Because I know no, the Music no, City no, no. Miracle. No, 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 This is when Herm was a player. And Herm was a safety oh. for the Eagles. Oh, okay, and I feel much less. I feel I feel much better about not knowing. No, you're good. Herm, Herm was a safety for the Eagles. The Giants had the game wrapped. All they had to do was kneel on the ball. Instead, the quarterback decides, the coach decides, we'll just hand off to Larry Zonka in the backfield. The quarterback turns. The fumble is screwed up. Uh, Herm Edwards swoops it up, scores a touchdown. Eagles win. That was the closest you can have to this kind of play. What's the worst sports movie fumble? This movie, the sh- the Sugar Bowl in this one, or the fumble at the end of All the Right Moves? Or not the end, but the, the last game of All the Right Moves. See, I don't remember that. I don't want to lie to you. Uh, okay, that that's the Tom Cruise one where it's... it's no, really I know bad. the movie. I don't remember. Th- what I don't like, I'll tell you this. I don't like... I feel like a better question... Not better, but a, a fair question is more realistic, overweight interior lineman doing serious damage. John Goodman and everybody's all American or whatever the guy's name in varsity blues. Where he oh, Billy Bob. Oh, Billy it's, Bob. it's definitely Billy Bob. Cause yeah. Billy Bob, the thing is they stack up Billy Bob. Billy Bob outweighs everyone in that movie by like a hundred pounds. He was going, no, he's getting nowhere near that kick. I don't know. I got faith in Billy Bob. RIP, RIP Ron Lester. Yeah, he's dead. Um, Jeff, what worked about this one? We've talked about the concept the that they, you know, talking about an aging athlete or an athlete basically watching his star fall in real time. What else, what, what hits for you? What else worked in this one? I thought Dennis Quaid was great. I did. I actually thought he was great. I think he nailed this part. I thought he was fantastic. Um, I thought they gave you a really nostalgic feel of college sports back in the fifties. And I mean, nostalgic can be a synonym sometimes for racist and, you know, exclusive, but I mean, uh, you know, not inclusive, but I did think they gave you a little sort of sense of what it was a really good sense of what it was to be a football star in the South back in the day when everyone loves you and you're the man and your girlfriend is as popular as you are because she's your girlfriend. I just thought it really touched me. I swear to God, it's corny as it sounds. It really touched me. And seeing this guy decay over two hours, it just, it really hit home for me. It just did. And that doesn't really work if they, I, I think if they don't get LSU to sign off on the movie and they don't get the real 
Because there is nothing like how these how these kids are adored in college. There's mm-hmm. nothing like being the the college football superstar on campus. Just absolutely nothing like it. And if they didn't get that final scene of him being carried off in the Sugar Bowl, and they didn't get those LSU pep rallies where he is just God's gift, you don't you wouldn't feel it as much at the end when he is a a wealthy nobody. I agree. I actually. I thought a few times during the last time I watched this movie about when I was in college, I went to University of Delaware. This is going to sound super weird, but I swear it's true. Our uh, our college newspaper, like they would, everyone would read the college newspaper. You'd walk everywhere, everyone would be reading the papers. And I was the quote unquote asshole columnist who would like bash fraternities and call for coaches to be fired. It was just a stupid role I played because I was immature and an idiot. But I would walk around campus and people would be like, hey, fuck you. Or, hey, I love your column or blah, blah, blah. Like I was you know, at least in my head, like mini celebrity writer at the University of Delaware in 1993. And you were loving that, right? Loving it, loving it because I was insecure and, you know, just didn't know myself, but I loved it. I remember going back the next year to speak to a journalism class and it sounds dumb and nobody knowing who I was, like nobody knowing who I was. Everyone just moved on. People move on. And it's a sad feeling. And I was not a college football star or even close. I was just a newspaper geek. But it was a really sad feeling that I remember very well. And I think every time I go back to Delaware, I still feel that a little bit. The kind of what what you were and what you'll never be again. And I just think this movie, more than any movie I've ever seen, when I watch it, hits me with that. It does a, it does a very good job. I can't think of any other movie that that gets to this. There are lots of movies that show... Like I think of the there are those later Rocky movies when Rocky is kind of you know he they're basically like hey we got to figure out how to make Rocky an underdog again after all of Philadelphia loved him mm-hmm. but this is the only thing you see you see the high and you see the low and it's a gradual because this movie spans what like twenty five years I think. Yeah, about, which is, yeah, he returns for his twenty fifth uh, reunion, twenty fifth mm-hmm. anniversary of the team. Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, which is, you know, where an athlete can go from the absolute peak of the mountain to the absolute bottom of the pile, and yeah. those those college students who were not born when he was the gray ghost at LSU couldn't give less of a shit about him. Yeah, they don't care. Uh, yeah, uh, something else this movie did good that was realistic. I I agree with you. I just I have to say Quaid was I thought Quaid was really good. Had that cocaine energy, but I thought of of the actors he was good. Uh, an athlete opening a bar or restaurant and hiring his stupid ass friend to run the money. Very <laughs> realistic. That that adds up. That is true. I didn't again. I could have done without Goodman. I really could have done without Goodman. But um, yeah, that's what they all did. They don't do it anymore. It's not the same, but it used to be, oh, you made it big. I don't know what to do with my money. Oh, you should invest it. What should I invest in? And it would either be a car dealership, uh, a beer distributorship, or a bar. When when they walk into the restaurant, when Quaid walks into the restaurant and you see Lawrence behind the bar, you're like, oh, f- this is going to go fucking terribly. Yeah, this won't end well. You you, you end. knew it without a doubt. Yeah. Um, same with just everything about Lawrence. You knew him. Him turning into a degenerate was very predictable. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I, like you. I'm not big on Goodman in this movie, but when he throws the radio because LSU wins and Duke doesn't cover, was one oh, yeah. of the few times I laughed out loud in this movie. Yeah, that was good. I also thought it was interesting because that was a similar. I think that was the same scene where like 
we see them with a bunch of women. And that was one area not touched upon a lot, that he was cheating on his wife, that uh, the Grey Ghost was cheating on Babs quite a bit. That was that was right before that. That was when Kate goes to Washington oh, or wherever. So you're right, right. Um, that, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. And, and uh, Jessica Lang, Babs mentions that a few, like mentions yeah. that they're, you know, that she's aware of it. It, it touches on stuff like that of the, the player wife life, but it also, it, it just barely like gets on the surface of stuff like that. I, I could have seen that a little more drugged out and a little less like just cake and laying, but yeah, I agree. Um, uh, something we, we talked about the Denver game. You talked about the football game, the, like the football aspect, the, the shot of him getting snowed on realizing that it, it's over oh, is, great. is fantastic. Great. So good. That moment, it's just the moment when you're like, this is it. I can't do this anymore, and I, I should have never come back. And you know you're watching the movie, and he's like, yeah, I'm coming back. I'm going to go back. I'm going to play. They have a team in Denver. It's ridiculous. And he's basically thinking, I'm going to dominate because I'm the gray ghost, and I'm going to. these guys don't know what they're doing. And you know at that moment it's a terrible idea, and he's going to get his ass kicked. And then it's, it's still satisfying when he goes and gets his ass kicked. Yeah, it is, and it's a great shot. Um, yeah. The last thing I had that worked – Patricia Clarkson. Shout out to Patricia Clarkson, who's randomly in the end of this movie as Cake's fiance. She's she's thrown a little heat there. Uh, I wasn't feeling her. Really? I'm okay. I don't know. I didn't need her. She was fine. It was a very limited role for Patricia Clarkson. It, it was. I guess so. She's like the Yankee know it all and kind of. I don't know. Yeah, it was fine. I was very. I was surprised to see her. It was, it was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Um. Let's get into to what didn't work. And I'm going to throw out kind of one of my bigger complaints. I don't think, uh, I don't think Lang and Quaid have much chemistry at all. I Um, I wasn't, I wasn't into that couple from the get go. I think I would agree with you. Um, In a way they didn't need it because it was a relationship based on youthful sort of naivety, you know, and, and they weren't really a happy couple. They were just a convenient couple. Um. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's very fair. It was not great chemistry. I'm getting. I'm guessing from this movie they did not stay in touch. I don't think so. Yeah, especially no. with what Lang said. I don't. I don't think they they swap numbers. Right. Um. You like me? You weren't weren't big on. I thought Lang's Louisiana was was pretty tough. Uh, I I didn't think it was. She's just she's really going for it in a lot of places too, and it it was not landing for me. No, I thought she. First of all, she. Almost everyone was too old for their parts, and that's a problem with a movie where you, where you age twenty five years. They were um, both in their mid to late thirties when they were yeah, in college. It was kind of ridiculous, and um, but I get it. She was just felt she felt really over the top at times, like really over the top, like almost like she was in a novella where, yeah, it in me, blah 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 blah, and like she was just going for it, and it wasn't a very subtle performance. Maybe it didn't call for that in her eyes, but I just thought it was too much. What else for you didn't work about this one? What are the, the big factors? We've talked about oh. Goodman. We've talked about Lang. What else? My, to me, the biggest problem with this movie is uh, her relationship with Cake. Yes. Terrible. I don't give a shit. I've never Awful. given a shit. It's the equivalent of Major League with Tom Berenger and Rene Russo, where you're just like, I don't, I don't really care. Like, this isn't that interesting to me, and you're taking away from a really good story. I thought this was shit. I don't, it's weird that he's like, Gavin's it's super cousin. creepy. He's so yeah. unlikable because of how like weirdly attracted to her he is. Yeah, and how he's like, 
first of all, it sucks because Timothy Hunter is actually a really good actor, like a really good actor. But um, the times when he's like, he'll be alone with her and like Gavin will be in the other room and he'll be like, so are we going to talk about this? And there's really no reason to talk about it. You had sex one time because she was lonely. Like what else is there to talk about? But they make him uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. And also his character is very underdeveloped in this movie. So she clearly cares about him and loves him and thinks he's this great guy. But we don't really get to know him that well. He's just this creepy guy who pops up a lot. Yeah, and uh, also Cake 100% has a lot of Confederate sympathy. He wrote a Jeb Stewart book, Pride of the Confederacy, I believe, or Pride of the South or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, you know, he talks up about like Blue doing the sit-in and how uh, inspiring it was or how it makes him feel like he needs to do something. And then he writes a book about fucking Jeb Stewart. Yeah, it's a little weird. And That's not what Blue was going for. Is he at the march? Partic- I don't think he's participating when he sees Blue get hit in the face with a bottle. But why is he there? Right now, Cake is on Facebook just furious at Confederate statues getting removed. Yeah, he's not happy about it. And he's like, he's he's telling his, his, his if he married, what's her name? Um, she's voting for Biden. He's probably voting for Trump. But he, he's made, definitely making excuses for Trump. Oh, they're divorced for sure. Yeah, they probably are. Like, for sure. Because I think he's probably older than her. He's like the guy who was the professor. Maybe she's a recent graduate or like a TA or something. And yeah. she right now thinks he's really suave and cultured. And he's cool. He's from Louisiana. He's a little different. And then, like, the during the George W. Bush presidency, he's like, she's like, wait a minute. Like, you kind of suck. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that 100%. Not a um, yeah, and speak. I mean, I already talked about like Quaid and Ghost and Babs. How did you feel? How do you feel about the ending when they're like the big payoff is? Oh, they they're actually you know they're getting back together. Like, do you think they meant that is supposed to be a happy ending? Because you don't like they didn't even like each other that much in college. It was mostly a just like we we're, we're supposed to be together, kind of like you said. Like, I don't think. To me, it's not a happy ending. No, there's no way that marriage can work. It's zero percent. None. She's, she's too far gone. She's too smart. She's too accomplished. He's got nothing going on. It's not like he's going to so, all of a sudden go back to college, complete his degree, and uh, start teaching high school English. He's done. Like he's the golf pro and the schlub, and she's a savvy businesswoman. And I, in a way, a much more realistic ending would be. I hate to say this, but would be him in a hotel in a motel room. With a hook or a bag of coke and a, and a forty-five, and he kills himself at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like he was, he was, he was outmatched by his wife, and he couldn't deal with it. And he was just, there's no way that ends well just because they had sex. Well, there's and no that's way. what it, that's what it feels like at the end of the movie. It's like he's realized, okay, my uh, my whole career is done. I'm not remembered at all for my football. Really, the only thing I have to hang on to my life because my kids are pretty much either out of the house or on the way out. The only thing I have of my old life is that like I bagged the Magnolia Queen in college. So I'm gonna confess I'm gonna you know profess my love to her and say things are gonna be different, but I'm still gonna be the sad, morose, shitty golf pro being super pissed that she has a successful career. Right. I and agree. I'm also like I'm also ninety percent sure she had sex with my cousin, and yet he's still around all the time. Oh yeah, that was weird too, and it's hard to tell. Like, 
maybe there's a part of him that feels bad because he was screwing all the girls while he was uh, all the young women while he was playing football, and maybe this is just maybe he feels like this is payback for who he was, but they don't address it very well. No, no, they, they I mean, they just this movie does a lot of things well and like brings up a lot of good points. It just it, there's so much that could have been left on the cutting room floor or and and changed out for flushing out some more of those ideas a little bit more about what the relationship between Quaid and Lang is during his professional career and like splitting time. So I was always wondering, like blue shows up to the house and he's like, Oh, I thought, you know, I thought ghost would be here. And she's like, no, he's in you know Washington. He's got a game. And it's like, well, wouldn't they live in Washington? They would have a place in Washington. Like NFL players usually like, yeah, they might live in have a house in their hometown, but they have a, an established person has a place in his city. And it's not until he retires that they have that little apart. You see, they have a little apartment or whatever in Washington. They're packing up. And it's like, why didn't we get any glimpse of what these like a fish out of water thing about these Louisiana people living in Washington while he's a pro athlete in Washington? It's just very, very interesting what they chose not to to bring into the movie. You want to know his life as a Redskin. That's what you want to know. You want to know. What was he doing as a Redskin? What kind of player was he? What was their life like? And I feel like that's very absent from this movie. It's a fair criticism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Kevin Costner and Freddie Prince Jr. awards for best and worst on-screen athlete. Does anyone stick out to you in this one as a good or bad movie athlete? Um, interesting. I thought Dennis Quaid was good. I just thought he was good. I thought I bought him. I just completely bought him as an on-screen athlete. I got no beef with him. And I thought um, John Goodman was ridiculous just because, again, they went to the old 80s trope of the uh, the overweight guy, you know, charging into the line and blah, blah, blah. But otherwise, I thought it, I thought it was a fair, fair sports movie, like a very good sports movie, athletically. Yeah, and they keep everyone else anonymous. It's all stunt doubles or, or real football footage. Uh, Quaid and Goodman are the only ones they, they give you. Interestingly, okay. I just want to say, because you missed this, the um, – the Denver Broncos quarterback at the time, playing the Denver Broncos quarterback, was Jeff Wickersham, who is LSU's starting quarterback. Oh, really? Yep. I did. I did miss that. See, that's that's good. I mean, all the extras, all the background football stuff is really good. So that makes sense that they would have had an actual quarterback. Yep. Um, the Lenny Harris Pinch Hitter Award for Best Supporting Character. Uh, the first nominee I have just someone, did you notice in the, uh, in the first scene when, when ghost goes to that party, ghost and Babs yep. and Kate go to that party, the guy pissing next to ghost. Yep. Newman, Wayne Knight. Newman. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, I have, uh, other nominees. I've Ray Baker is bowling Kelly, who is just your classic, uh, slimy booster. I'm, I'm also not sure he'd be treating his idol's wife like shit. Yeah, but yeah, the 70s were a weird misogynistic time. Uh, Patricia Clarkson is Leslie. Just shout out to Patricia Clarkson. I enjoy her very much. And then your boy Carl Lumbly is Narvel Blue. I think he's my pick. What do you he's think? He's my pick. I thought Lumbly was great. And I think the name Narv. All right. There's a, um, there are two great fictional football names that I love. Um, I think Narvel Blue is a great name. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's great. And then there was a. <laughs> There's a Gary Coleman movie from the 1980s called The Kid with the Broken Halo. And there's a football player. He's a wide receiver for the Cleveland Browns. And his name is Rudy Desitel. And those are my two favorite sports, fictitious sports names of all time. Rudy Desitel and Narvel Blue. I, uh, I have always enjoyed Benny the Jet Rodriguez, if you get to oh. throw in nicknames. Yeah, that's pretty good, too. 
the big chill moment. And when when I do this do this category, I have the caveat that it can also apply for something that gives you the stupid chills. I have something that gives me the actual chills, the real, the the good sports movie chills, and I have something that gives me the stupid chills. Can you guess what gives me the stupid chills in this movie? Like you just feel dumb. You feel dumb watching it happen. Yeah, the dumb. It just it it just it's cringy. I mean, is it not Timothy Hutton talking to her about sex? It's uh, Timothy Hutton and and it's Cake and Babs doing the twist. They do oh. it at that dance party and yeah. they do it again at the house. It is horrendous. That is unfortunate. That is fair. Yeah, I agree with that. That is a terrible moment. And neither of them are, I mean, they don't really seem like very good dancers and it's completely unnecessary. I'm with you. You did not need the twist in this movie. But for an actual big chill moment, when uh, when he's getting carried off in the sugar bowl and you see the gravity of that moment hitting him, that that actually did get me. Yeah, that's a great moment. And also, I like the moment at the end. They show the uh, – somewhere at the end of the movie, they show them at the bonfire again. It might be during the credits. Um, you end with them as this, him as this kind of older couple and blah, blah, blah. And then it flashes back real quick to him at the bonfire with, with her as a young – uh, college student and i really kind of love that too that's a good it is a good shot i just i didn't feel that one as much because it's like yeah they didn't really like each other that much either like back then it's just yeah. i don't know but it, it's a it's very it's an effective lost time shot or lost moment in time shot yeah yeah i agree would this make a good 30 for 30 if this this were occurred, oh. have occurred in real yes. life yes Yes. So this what's the what's the angle? 30. So what what's the angle? How does it how does it start? Because athletes like the ghost happen, like college. It's college. College star has a decent pro career. Yeah. Kind of goes away. All right, I, I'm going to change it. I would say he has to have my. It has to end with my ending. Which is him <laughs> in the motel room with the hookers and the coke and the gun. You're right, though. Otherwise, it's basically a million different college football player stories. You're right. That's fair. In fact, it would be a uh, a football life, and you'd be like, "Oh, I guess I, I'll watch it because I'm kind of bored." Um, so I take that back. I change. It needs a more dramatic ending. It could uh, be a good E60 when if he's talking about his career and he's struggling in Washington, and then yeah, my uh, my best friend was killed over his gambling debts in the bar I invested in. He bankrupted. It's it's like a, a story about all the bad things happening at once with his best friend getting murdered by by a loan shark and then finding out that his best friend had just completely wrecked his finances, which would kind of wreck his life. That's fair. And if I were writing this book, if I were doing the actual Gavin Gray biography, my favorite chapter would be the Denver Broncos. I would love that. Who's the who's the top interview you've got to get besides Gavit Gray if you're if you're writing this book? Well, I definitely need his wife, but I feel like uh, Norvell Blue has a lot to offer right there, and I think I'd want to know about that moment when he drops the N word on him and walks out, and how Norvell Blue is able to for, kind of overlook it or at least look past it, and then later on show up at his events. You know, mm-hmm. gives his wife a job. If his wife, he had really bad makeup at the end too, by the way, if you didn't notice. Norvell oh yeah, it was it was a tough look. Jeff, how would you improve this movie? I mean, I would have it end with a cocaine <laughs> in a motel room. I <laughs> got over this. I would get rid of John Goodman. I would get rid of any of the cake, babs, love scenes. I would probably, no offense, get rid of Patricia Clarkson. Um, I would make, I agree with you, I'd make Norvell Blue's path a little more clear. 
Uh, and I think, oh, and, and I agree with you too. I would add more of that sort of, like we know them as this young couple and then we don't really see them for a while. They're, he's in Washington, but we don't really see it. And I think those are some interesting develop, developmental years that are ignored. But I do love this movie. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i not going to beat a dead horse. Like, I would love to see more of the Washington years. Um, a little less, I mean, pretty much no Babs cake sexual frustration. Cake is supposed to be this kind of grounded observer. Like your perspective is the viewer. Like he's the one normal guy in this situation. Cause you don't, you and I don't know what it's like to be a ghost or be a Babs, be yeah. on that pedestal. Cake is supposed to be our, our perspective is the viewer, but instead he's also this like creepy dude who wants to sleep with Babs. And that just, that doesn't work. I could have, I could have done without that. And maybe he's, he's a trust because ghost does we as viewers we need ghost to be able to kick thoughts off someone we need yes. we need him to be able to have that conversation with with someone who has been there from the beginning like ghost says it, i don't think it works as well if he's just talking to jeff perlman at the country club yeah i if agree he, if he's talking to someone who has known him for 20 years and has seen this i think it works a little bit better and it, and being so raw with someone who he knows but like it's just tough that that guy has been doing bad dancing and, and wanting to fuck his wife for 25 years. It just doesn't, it doesn't hit as well. Um, last category. Before More Restore, would you rather see a prequel, sequel, or remake of this movie? I think I'm with you. I think a remake of this movie could be really well done and they could get rid of some of the mistakes and cast a few of the people better. And also with sort of modern technology, you wouldn't have to kick on the makeup in the same way. You could just make it look a little more real. But I, I think a remake of this movie actually could work. I would love to see a remake of this movie. Yeah. Would you want it to be the same, the same exact thing, college legend, carried off the field, good, not Hall of Fame pro career? Or would you want to see this in the, the sense of a Johnny Manziel, who was like the most famous college athlete on the planet for one year? No, because what I think he did really well with this story, Frank DeFord, is it taps into something we don't hear of that often. Like the Menzel story is a pretty common story of the flame out and then you drink in or drugs or whatever and flame out. But this is actually the slow burn. You know, this is the guy who had it all and gradually lost it and kind of faded. And I just don't think that's a story that's told very often. So I, I like that a lot more. I agree. Um, I, I was trying to think of like who a current comp, like what kind of... Um... It'd be kind of interesting, say, say, I mean, Jameis Winston is still young, but say Jameis Winston's the rest of his career is like a, uh, or you know what, RG3, if he has an RG3 type career, I mean, he even, he goes to watch, like a guy who wins a Heisman is very famous, goes, you know, has a really good year in Washington. And then we just watch him be really average, kind of struggle with injuries, struggle with some personal, some, some, uh, some marriage issues and stuff. I think a career like that would be, would be much more interesting to see. We've, like you said, we've kind of, we've seen the Johnny Manziel movie before. Like and, I think Marcus Mariota right now with the Raiders, it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting, you know, and it's this guy, he was the number two pick in the draft. He was going to be everything. He was a starter's rookie year. He was a star. He's a really good-looking guy. He was the big man on campus at Oregon. And now he's just the backup quarterback in Las Vegas, and nobody really gives a shit. I think I think that would be a good one. I would love – I just – I would love the shit out of this if someone remade it. I would be all for it. And you make, you make this one, like, 
an hour and 50 minutes, maybe two hours, like you, you trim it up, you, you know, you, you get a little more hyper-focused. You have no, no cake, no, no weird, weird cousin, but, um, I am appreciative that you got this movie on my radar. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed talking it with you, Jeff, tell the folks again uh, about your new book, where they can buy it, when they can buy it. Well, it's called Three Ring Circus. It's the 96 to 04 Lakers, so the Shaq Kobe years. And uh, comes out September 22nd, and it is, uh, it's available everywhere, hopefully everywhere. I'm looking forward to it. Jeff, as always, you're always welcome back on Big Screen Sports. If you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, make sure to subscribe, rate, review. You all know the drill. New episodes every Monday. Also, if you are a baseball fan, check out my interview series from Phenom to the Farm presented by Baseball America. That comes at you every other Tuesday, and we will catch you next Monday. Thanks for listening. Big Screen Sports is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. The wait is over. Football is back. You may not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get on on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else, and you're going to need wagering to get through this football season. You can get in on season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.